We're spending today's morning show with a very gifted writer by the name of David uh, Adams Cleveland, a novelist and also an art historian, responsible not only for an array of books about art history, but also for some very compelling works of fiction, including uh, With a Gem Like Flame, Love's Attraction, and Time's Betrayal, and more recently, a novel called Gods of Deception. And like at least one of his previous novels, this novel is very much deeply rooted in the historical record and also spans multiple generations. And so these are novels that uh, display, demonstrate a very, very impressive level of, of craftsmanship and imagination. And, and in this particular case, we are talking about a novel that revolves around the infamous trial of Alger Hiss, who was found gift, guilty of perjury, I believe the year was 1950, and uh, it was a case that uh, garnered headlines across the country and indeed around the world, and of course was part of a moment in our history, an era in our history, when there were all kinds of heightened fears and suspicions about uh, what sorts of of, of, of of what was going on behind the scenes, the potentially to uh, bring down our nation. Uh, it was a very, very scary time to be an American. And uh, that's one of the things, of course, that has fired the imagination of David Adams Cleveland uh, in the penning of this uh, latest novel. Uh, again, it's called Gods of Deception. It's published by Greenleaf. And David Adams Cleveland, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Greg, it's great to be with you. I'm glad we can have this conversation. So help us understand how someone's resume uh, can be that of an art historian and a novelist. Uh, How are those two worlds or arenas or exploits connected as far as you're concerned? Well, Greg, I really think of myself these days as a novelist. Uh, My art history... Uh, was uh, was really some years ago. Um, but the way that they relate is that when I was writing art history, when I was, uh, I wrote a book called The History of American Tonalism, which is about American landscape painting between 1880 and 1920. And I wrote that book at a time when nobody knew who the American tonalists were. They were artists such as uh, Whistler and uh, George Innes and uh, about 30 or 40 others. And I took uh, relished uh, reviving the reputations of these forgotten artists at the turn of the century. Uh, And I love telling stories about the uh, artists and reviving their reputations. And the way that the art history um, works into my fictional writing is that I love to set scenes. I'm a great believer that a, that a novel, the reader needs to feel the time and the place, the atmosphere, the weather, uh, what's going on in the background of the uh, particular scenes. So I like to use my, my art history eye to uh, paint as vivid a picture of the background uh, that the action and plot uh, characters of my novels take place. Uh, And I like to think that when you're done with reading 
uh, a great novel or, or even one of my novels, uh, you may forget the, um, the characters and even the plot, but something of the atmosphere, the landscapes, the world in which uh, the novel unfolded will will stay with you. Hmm. Well, and uh, there's uh, more than uh, one passage in Gods of Deception in which we have somebody looking uh, in an art, in a gar- art gallery at various works of art and uh, their observations and uh, what we sort of learn as we read about it. That sounds like the work of a very, very skilled and experienced art historian, so uh, penning those words. So uh, that's a, a really uh, a striking element in this particular story. So how is it that you made that jump or leap or step from the work you were doing as an art historian to, to writing fiction, to writing novels? I mean, at what point did that possibility occur to you? Well, writing fiction was always um, the first thing on my mind. Uh, but like any fiction writer, it's very hard to uh, get started, to learn your craft, uh, much less to uh, find publishers and all that kind of uh, good stuff. So in the uh, early days, I was actually a journalist. Uh, I worked for Voice of America for 10 years. I was the arts editor, and I also covered the Soviet Union in China. Uh, so after 10 years of, uh, of doing that, I embarked uh, uh, on, a, on my fictional career, but uh, the art history was always there in the background, and um, some of my first published books were in art history, um, but I was always more interested uh, in the story mm. uh, and telling a, a fictional universe. And uh, your first novel, With a Gem Like Flame, uh, set in the beautiful and fascinating city of Venice, is very much focused on the world of, of the visual arts, correct? That's right. Uh, it's a story about uh, a, a New York art dealer, Jordan Brooks, who gets wind of a lost Raphael Madonna and Child that's available to the highest bidder in Venice. This is in still in the... Uh, just the post-war, uh, post-Berlin uh, Wall, fall of the Berlin Wall days, and he goes off to Venice in pursuit of this um, of this prize painting. And uh, the book is very much about Venice. It's very much about Raphael. It's very much about the art-dealing world, which I uh, know something about. Uh, and Venice was an early passion of mine, uh, which makes an appearance in, in many of my novels. I know that uh, your previous novel, Time's Betrayal, which I have not seen, um, is uh, described as a multi-generational epic, which would be, uh, I think, an apt description certainly for Gods of Deception as well. Uh, Did anything in particular draw you to this kind of framework? I ask it because uh, it's a framework that... uh, while offering all kinds of really exciting possibilities, I should think is also a really challenging framework within to work in terms of building a novel that's cohesive and makes sense and so on. Uh, but what draws you to, to wanting to shape your novels in this way to span multiple generations and eras? 
Well, I've always been a history buff, uh, interested in history, how history sets the scene, if you will, for, for our own lives. Um, but I've always avoided writing, if you will, a historical genre novel. That is a novel set in a uh, past time and place. What I like to do is uh, set my novels uh, where history influences the present, and that is often through the uh, through families and the generations of families. And I like a situation where some past historical event has somehow reverberated through the generations of a family uh, and allows one to look back at that history and see what it was all about and how it has percolated through uh, various generations of the of a family for better and for worse uh, and how it's made the the past relevant uh, in the present I'm a great believer that um, history is important that it's uh, it is the landscape uh, that we we live by uh, and the more we understand our history the better off we'll be so I'm trying to explore history through the present, through an American family, in the case of the Alger Hiss spy trial. Mm. When you write your novels and when you are setting them in actual, factual history, um, what is kind of the balancing act between uh, preserving in the course of the novel what actually happened, what we know happened, versus introducing elements that are, of course, fictional. And what is kind of the tension between those, between the factual record versus fictional elements that you are, in a sense, introducing into the factual record? I don't know if I'm making much sense with that question, but it strikes me as a very tricky challenge for anyone who writes this kind of novel. It is a challenge, Greg. Uh, I think that the most important thing in my mind is sticking to the facts uh, and letting the facts uh, lead you uh, in terms of the fictional elements. Uh, in in uh, Gods of Perception, 99% of the historical facts are accurate and correct, uh, but some of the uh, historical facts open a Pandora's box that the uh, fictional writer can uh, can take up and use to create uh, a plot, suspense, uh, and a story, which of course is absolutely important. If there's no story, if there's not a good plot, uh, your characters uh, don't have a, a setting in which to uh, interact. So I try to stick pretty close to the history. And the history of the Alger Hiss affair is one of uh, great fascination. It happened before I was born, but I can remember even growing up uh, watching um, Firing Line and uh, Bill Buckley interviewing characters, or I should say interviewing uh, subjects about the Alger Hiss case, and it was such a controversy, it was so heated. Um, and the Alger Hiss uh, uh, spy trial seems so divisive, uh, half the country believing that Hiss was innocent, half believing that he was guilty. And I was, uh, I was fascinated and troubled 
uh, to try and figure out how this could be the case. And when I started my, my research for the book, um, I realized that there had been a watershed since um, the turn of this century uh, with the, uh, with the uh, access to uh, decrypted uh, Soviet cable traffic, the Venoma decrypts, as they're called, and access to some uh, Soviet intelligence files, which allowed us for the first time to understand the truth about the Alger Hiss trial. And the truth is that Alger Hiss was indeed guilty of spying. But the most important aspect of that, and which I touch on in the novel in a big way, was that Alger Hiss was convicted of perjury for lying about passing top-secret State Department papers to Whitaker Chambers, who was his Soviet intelligence handler, uh, in the late 1930s. No big deal, certainly, uh, these days. Um, but at the time of the trial, it was the difference between his guilt and innocence. So he was convicted uh, for handling, uh, for handing over top-secret State Department papers in the late 1930s. But in reality, we now know from the decrypted Soviet cables and access to Soviet intelligence files that Alger Hiss was a lot more. He was an agent of influence who sat at the right hand of Roosevelt at the Yalta Conference uh, which was instrumental in handing to, uh, uh, to Stalin uh, most of Eastern Europe and a lot of other very unfortunate uh, agreements, uh, including the, uh, the, uh, forcible, uh, reuni- the forcible transportation of two million uh, Russian refugees to Stalin at the end of the Second World War, all of them to their almost certain um, destruction in the Gulag uh, in Siberia. A very sad case. So we know that uh, Alger Hiss was in fact uh, a Soviet uh, agent of influence working in the Roosevelt administration. We know that every day at Yalta he was debriefed by his Soviet handler as to what the uh, American and Allied negotiating position was. And we now know that on the way back from Yalta, uh, with a part of the U.S. delegation, he stopped for one day in Moscow. In fact, the one day in his entire life and career that he had set foot in the Soviet Union. And there, in a secret ceremony behind the scenes, Alger Hiss was given the Order of the Red Star by the chief of Soviet intelligence for all the good things he'd done for the Soviet Union. Uh, so that was what I discovered in doing my research for the novel, and that's what set me off um, on the writing process to, um, to ferret out that information and integrate that into my three generations of an American family who are, in a sense, dealing with the repercussions not only of the trial, but of the uh, agent of influence that Alger Hiss was. We're speaking with David Adams Cleveland, and we're talking about his most recent novel, which is called Gods of Deception. Uh, before we dig into the novel itself, uh, I think it would be good for you to tell our listeners a, a bit more about 
Alger Hiss and his story. Uh, maybe a little bit of background would be helpful in terms of what ultimately led him to have that place of prominence at the Yalta Conference in 1945. Uh, ahead of that, uh, what had Alger Hiss done? And, and at that point in time, ultimately, what position did he have with the Roosevelt administration? At the time of the Yalta Conference, uh, Alger Hiss was a top undersecretary uh, in the State Department uh, on the policy planning uh, staff of the State Department. Uh, it was a position of, of influence. It was a position where he was able to um, take in a lot of the uh, intelligence that, that he was able to then pass on to the Soviets. Alger Hiss is a mystery. Uh, even with as much as we now know, he's still a history. He's still a mystery. It's hard for us to um, to figure out uh, what his motives were. We don't even know quite when he became a communist, joined the Communist Party. We know from the testimony of Whitaker Chambers and Whitaker Chambers, uh, who was his uh, Soviet handler. We know that he was a communist in the early 30s and was actively spying and uh, transmitting um, top-secret documents to Whitaker Chambers and his uh, uh, Soviet handler uh, in the 30s. Uh, we know that Alger Hiss never admitted to being a spy. In fact, to his dying day, uh, he kept... Um, pleading that he was an innocent man and that he'd been set up by the likes of Nixon and, um, and uh, uh, the FBI, uh, and that it was a conspiracy um, that he wanted to overturn. He spent four years in Lewisburg uh, prison for his conviction, and he got out uh, and again was, was pleading his innocence. Uh, his, his law license had been taken away at that point, so he was only able to work uh, marginal jobs for the rest of his life. But uh, unlike the, uh, the great Soviet spies, um, the Cambridge Five, uh, Guy Burgess, Kim Philby, Donald McLean, and John Cancross, who were all riven with guilt and anxiety about their spying, about betraying their class, about betraying their country. All of them defected and escaped uh, behind the Iron Curtain and ended their days uh, in alcoholic stupor in their Moscow dachas. Uh, Alger Hiss was not like that. He maintained his equanimity. He maintained his uh, stance of being an innocent man uh, and died in his 90s, still proclaiming his innocence to the world. He uh, was a fascinating individual, hmm. and perhaps uh, we'll never know quite what motivated him, although in God's uh, of deception, um, I do try to get into Alger Hiss's mind and uh, tap into uh, what's there and, and see what his motivations were. I'm especially fascinated about that last point, and we don't need to go too much into the specifics if you would rather that our listeners read it for themselves, but I hope you will at least talk a little bit about 
what you thought about as the novelist when it comes to a matter like that, where there is nothing at all in the public record uh, that would indicate what uh, Mr. Hiss's motivation motives might have been uh, for engaging in this kind of work. Uh, I mean, for someone, for a novelist who wants to fill in that intriguing blank, what do you think about uh, in terms of how to fill in that blank? Well, it's an interesting paradox that uh, we now know from, again, from these decrypted Soviet cables and access to Soviet intelligence files and FBI files, we now know that Alger Hiss was not alone. He was one of 500 Soviet agents that we know about that had infiltrated the highest reaches of the U.S. government and related war industries. We know that, in fact, there was uh, another spy of great influence in the Treasury Department, Harry Dexter White. We know that there were spies, in fact, in the White House, uh, one Laughlin Curry, uh, who was also a compatriot of, of Alger Hiss. So we know that Alger Hiss was, in a sense, the tip of the iceberg. Um, there were 500 Soviet spies. We also now know that there were 200,000 um, Americans who were joined uh, the American Communist Party during the Depression years and the war years. Those 200,000 American communists provided the, uh, the infrastructure and the underground uh, from which the active Soviet spies were drawn from. So we know that this was going on, but we know relatively little about it. There has been um, uh, when after the Alger Hiss spy trial ended in 1950, which galvanized the country uh, in what is known as the Red Decades um, and uh, the fear of the Soviet Union, the fear of Soviet spying. Uh, this came on top of uh, the Soviet uh, Stalin's atom bomb uh, in 1949, the Korean War. Uh, soon after, uh, China going communist, uh, the U.S. became quite paranoid about uh, communist um, activity. So what I wanted to do as a novelist was to weave these strands of, uh, of history into three generations of an American family. And to do that, I took the um, patriarch of this particular family, uh, Edward Dimmick, uh, and he, uh, as a young uh, trial lawyer, was a defender of Alger Hiss. In fact, they had been uh, at Harvard Law School together and uh, had clerked uh, for Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, on the Supreme Court. So they knew each other. And I used uh, Edward Dimmick. Um, uh, uh, we now we meet him in the opening of the novel as an old man in his 90s, writing his memoirs, uh, and his memory is not as good as it was, and he enlists his grandson, a Princeton astrophysicist, no less, to help him finish these memoirs. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, I use the present generation, the 20-something uh, Princeton astrophysicist, astrophysicist George Altman, to be looking back at his 
grandfather's life and his defense of Alger Hiss. And as he looks back, a lot of these details about the Hiss case come to the fore, which then uh, pose the question, did his grandfather, did Edward Dimmick, believe his client to be guilty? Or was he under, um, he was just playing a good defense lawyer and doing his job uh, defending a client that he knew uh, was guilty. So that sets the stage for the novel, for the three generations of, the, of an American family. So Edward Dimmick is certainly a historical figure, and he was indeed uh, the lawyer who defended Alger Hiss in that famous trial. Um, have you engaged in poetic license or fictional license in terms of those subsequent generations, his his descendants, or is that also in terms of who those men are based in the historical record? Actually, Edward Dimmick, even though he is an historical character, a man uh, that I knew in my childhood, uh, he uh, was not involved with the Hiss trial, uh, so that is fictionalized. Well, that uh, aspect, even that is even that aspect is fictionalized. Okay, just yes, double it checking. Was not, it was. It was. Uh, it was. Edward Dimmick was was not actually involved uh, with the his trial, but he was of the generation, and he was of the background. So I knew. Uh, I used what I knew of the man um, as a context uh, for developing uh, the story of the man who had defended uh, Alger Hiss. The man who had defended Alger Hiss and at the same point defamed Whitaker Chambers, that is Alger Hiss's accuser, uh, which was very controversial um, uh, in both in the day and certainly in retrospect, because the, the, the defenders of Alger Hiss, uh, the only way they were going to really make their case was to uh, defame the character of Whitaker Chambers. Whitaker Chambers, who was uh, Hiss's um, uh, handler for Soviet military intelligence, uh, Whitaker Chambers, who had intimately known uh, Alger Hiss and his wife Priscilla. Uh, they had shared apartments. They had shared babysitters. They had shared parenting. They had shared uh, bird watching. Um, they were very close uh, to, to one another. And the fascinating thing about the trial, again, which leads itself to a fictional depiction, was how Whitaker Chambers could describe in intimate detail um, the world of Alger Hiss, the family, the background, the time they spent together. And yet Alger Hiss and his wife Priscilla Hiss pretty much denied everything. They denied knowing Whitaker Chambers. They denied... Uh, many of the details that he was able to portray. And so this gets into the whole idea of a parallel universe, that is, a universe in which Alger Hiss was guilty and a universe in which Alger Hiss was innocent. Uh, they're two very different worlds, and for almost two generations in America, from 1950 to 2000, those two parallel universes um, uh, warred with each other. And that is how I use uh, my character, George Altman, in the novel, a Princeton astrophysicist who understands all things about parallel universes to try and 
understand how those parallel universes came into being and ultimately which was the real universe and which was the fake universe. Mm. And again, just to clarify, in terms of the descendants of Edward Dimmick, so for instance, George, his grandson, that is a, that is a, a in a sense, creation of fiction? The grandson, oh, yeah. George? Uh, the, the, the Dimmick family in the novel is is they are all fictional characters um but they are fictional characters who lived in the al in the aftermath of the algerhis trial who are dealing um with the issues uh about their father and grandfather uh as a defender of algerhis how his reputation as a defender of of his was affected uh, by his work in the trial, and by the 50s uh, decade uh, uh, when uh, this country was paranoid about uh, the communist menace. Right. So um, his, his family is, uh, is fictional, but they lived through a very real history. Right, and, and you have crafted these characters with uh, that era in, in, in mind. I'm curious about something else. Uh, you have the uh, uh, Edward Dimmick, uh, the lawyer who supposedly uh, defended Alger Hiss in his trial, uh, and this is at the outset of the novel when he is the, uh, they are he is nervously awaiting the verdict, which uh, he fears the the verdict from the jury will will be guilty, and indeed it is, and he's thinking back as the jury files in about how the trial has gone and about uh, the kind of job he has done as uh, Alger Hiss's defender. And he is thinking to himself, he recalled yet again the ineptitude and inquisitorial overreach he had foolishly undertaken at Alger Hiss's promptings and assurances. So you have this fictional lawyer, Edward Dimmick, regretting some of the choices that he had made uh, during the trial, in terms of how he had gone about defending Alger Hiss. Is that at all based on the historical record of how this trial, uh, in fact, uh, uh, occurred, un- unspooled, and, uh, and the way in which uh, he was defended by his attorneys? This is pretty much a historical mystery. The participants in the Alger Hiss trial, that is the defense team that defended Alger Hiss, pretty much kept their silence in the decades after the trial. Uh, their uh, defense files uh, were uh, accessed um, by uh, scholars and historians uh, over the decades but pretty much to a man, they kept their silence. And uh, this was, in fact, one of the things that set me off to, to write the novel, because I think all of us wonder uh, in, uh, in famous uh, trials where somebody is being defended uh, and they look uh, guilty, and uh, one wonders how the defense team can summon up the, uh, the, the moral courage, if you will, to defend somebody that may be, uh, uh, may be accused of a horrific crime. But then we say, oh, well, that's the nature of the beast. That's what a defense lawyer does. Um, that's what our criminal justice 
system is all about. Um, but at the same time, one wonders what corners they cut, uh, how they justified, if they knew their client was in fact guilty, or they really believed in his innocence. Hmm. Those are the kind of questions that I explore in the novel. Those are fascinating questions indeed. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with David Adams Cleveland. We're talking about his latest novel, which is called Gods of Deception, which uh, explores the aftermath of the famous Alger Hiss trial and uh, uh, a character of fiction, uh, Edward Dimmick, who defended Alger Hiss. Uh, that is, uh, that's how it unfolds in the novel. And uh, two generations that follow after him coming to grips with that legacy. Um, I want to talk for a moment about uh, the grandson, George, uh, who ultimately is enlisted by his grandfather to help edit his memoirs, which sets him on a a really interesting uh, gauntlet of of discovery and exploration to try to sort out just the the story behind Alger Hiss uh, and this uh, infamous trial. Uh, Some of this, uh, when we first meet George, we are meeting him uh, in an art gallery that he operates. And uh, so this puts you on familiar footing. And there's a really interesting moment when uh, we learn what the name of this art gallery is. Tell our listeners about this. Well, George is an astrophysicist. Uh, That is, he was trained as an astrophysicist and uh, very close to getting his Ph.D., Um, but uh, staring out into the infinity of space, uh, all those years as he, as an undergraduate and then as a graduate student at the Princeton Ast- Astrophysics Department, uh, at some point, George is overwhelmed by the immensity of the cosmos. And he says in the novel at some point, if your brain is able to actually contemplate and understand the enormity of the universe, uh, your brain can catch fire and explode uh, with that knowledge. And so George, at some point, um, was uh, not able to continue uh, in his astrophysicist. As an astrophysicist, he was simply burned out um, by what he was facing uh, in the universe. So he retreats uh, and goes into a second career as uh, a gallery owner. And uh, he names his gallery Dark Matter, which, of course, is that uh, invisible uh, substance uh, that, uh, that forms something like 85% uh, of the known universe, which we can't see, we can't detect, but we know is somehow there uh, influencing gravity. Um, so that is the name of, of George's gallery. But George uh, is, uh, brings to, his, to the art world uh, his background in, astrophysic, in astrophysics. And uh, he, he, he struggles to keep his gallery alive. This is after uh, 9-11, uh, when he was actually uh, delivering a painting to uh, a client in the uh, North Tower of the Trade Center and um, arrived uh, in the plaza right after the first plane hit the, hit the tower. 
So he was witness to 9-11, and this, again, is another traumatic event in George's life. So as the novel opens uh, a year after 9-11, George Altman is um, struggling to keep his gallery going, struggling with the uh, impact of 9-11 on uh, the New York world, and is then suddenly drawn in by his uh, grandfather, uh, into uh, helping out uh, the judge uh, finish his memoir about the Alger Hiss case, at which point uh, the uh, alternate universes, the parallel universes, whether Hiss is guilty or whether Hiss is innocent, confronts George um, as well as a lot of other parallel uh, events, including his grandfather on his mother's side, who was a well-known artist, uh, who ends up playing an important role in the Alger Hiss case, too. It's, uh, yeah, and it's wonderful to see all of those strands tied together. And I especially love that notion of this art gallery being called Dark Matter. Somebody that George meets, you know, finds it very, very curious. I mean, it's not exactly a sunny, happy name for a business establishment. And it, it turns out that that's an interesting parallel uh, to uh, what ultimately George is going to begin to explore uh, and some of these crimes unrecorded and unpunished, uh, in your words in the novel, invisible but shaping the reality uh, we lived through. So in other words, there was this reality that people saw on the surface and they had no idea that behind the scenes were nefarious things going on uh, that were influencing uh, that more visible uh, reality. That's very much the case. And uh, we have to remember, as I mentioned earlier, uh, and George uh, discovers uh, in his investigation about the uh, truth behind the Alger his case, there were a number of murders and disappearances of potential witnesses uh, to the Alger his trial. Uh, there was Lawrence Duggan, uh, a State Department colleague of Alger Hiss, who fell 16 stories to his death on 45th Street in New York, uh, an ambiguous end, an ambiguous death, which was a KGB specialty. Uh, William Remington, another uh, convicted spy in this case, was murdered in Lewisburg Prison just two weeks before Alger Hiss was released from the same prison. Another potential witness, Laughlin Curry, in the, who had been a White House advisor to Franklin Roosevelt, disappeared to Columbia and was unable to testify in the trial. Harry Dexter White in the Treasury Department, uh, also a potential witness against Alger Hiss, died suddenly of an overdose of digitalis um, at his summer home uh, in New Hampshire. Uh, Marvin Smith, uh, an official in the uh, in the Justice Department, also who was uh, on tap to testify in the his trial, died in another six-story fall from an interior staircase in the Justice Department. Uh, Noel Field, another State Department uh, colleague of Alger Hiss, disappeared behind the Iron Curtain and was unable to testify in the Alger Hiss trial. So. George Altman, uh, my astrophysicist uh, art dealer uh, in the novel, uh, 
uh, has to figure out how all these disappearances, deaths uh, of potential witnesses figured in the Aldrich's trial, and how much of this his grandfather as a defender of his knew. Uh, so there's all kinds of strands here uh, that are woven into the novel, and many of these are fairly recent historical um, things that have been uncovered uh, by, by recent scholarship. So I'm hoping that uh, the reader will enjoy uh, both the history, but on a deeper level, the, uh, the Dimmick family and uh, how all this history uh, uh, enveloped and uh, influenced uh, three generations of this family. Hmm. We haven't yet touched on something you just mentioned in brief, which is that uh, for a time you worked for Voice of America, and you actually covered the former Soviet Union during the time of Perestroika and Glasnost. Uh, uh, so what kind of wealth of experience and insight is that for you in writing a novel like Gods of Deception? I mean, what did you learn about the Soviet Union and in particular this aspect of how they moved through the world? Uh, what, what did you learn that was especially helpful in shaping this novel? Well, anyone who has covered the Soviet Union and uh, gone into the uh, history and background of the KGB and the Soviet intelligence services uh, knows very much how they operate. Uh, they use the big lie. They use false flags. They use propaganda, disinformation. Uh, this is what Putin, of course, uh, is doing today in Ukraine uh, in uh, propagandizing his own people. Um, one is very well aware of these KGB uh, methodologies. And it is quite clear, as I was doing my research uh, for Gods of Deception and the Aldrichis case, that uh, Aldrichis was, in fact, just the tip of the iceberg of what the KGB managed to do in the 1930s and 1940s during the war years in terms of influencing, not just stealing secrets, stealing technology, stealing atom bomb secrets um, from the U.S., but in fact influencing American foreign policy. And this is a much greater um, threat um, that, that the country faced at the time uh, and uh, is, had been an ongoing threat uh, for most of the 20th century. Just to give you a quick idea of how dramatic this KGB uh, uh, influence was, Harry Dexter White, who was an undersecretary of Treasury uh, during the Roosevelt years, during the war years, in 1941, the spring of 1941, his Soviet handler called him up in Washington at the Treasury Department and said, I'd like to meet with you uh, at the Old Ebbets Grill, which was a meeting place, a restaurant across the street from the Treasury. And I'll meet you there for lunch, and I'll be carrying a copy of The New Yorker. His Soviet handler was a man named Viktor Pavlov, same as the drooling dog. 
Mr. Pavlov. And Harry Dexter White said, okay. And they met at uh, Old Ebbets Grill and sat down together. And uh, Victor Pavlov passed a piece of paper across the table to Harry Dexter White and said, I want you to read this. I want you to understand what it says and put it to memory. And Harry Dexter White picked up the paper and looked at it and read it and nodded and nodded and nodded and was about to put it in his jacket pocket. And Pavel says, no, 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 you give it back to me. And he handed it back to him. That piece of paper contained a plan by Soviet intelligence right from Stalin known as Operation Snow White. It was a plan whereby Harry Dexter White in the top reaches of the Treasury Department, second in command to Henry Morgenthau, who was the Treasury Department secretary. The Treasury Department was in charge of all economic matters are relevant to Japan, especially the embargoes of oil and steel and war material to Japan, which at that point um, was fighting uh, uh, in China, I had armies in China fighting not just the Chinese, but had in fact been involved with small wars with the Soviets in Manchuria uh, and the uh, Siberia. Uh, this plan called for Harry Dexter White, to do everything in his power to ratchet up the economic uh, sanctions on Japan, on oil and steel, uh, which he did in paper after policy paper to Henry Morgenthau, to his colleagues in the State Department, and ultimately that reached uh, Roosevelt's desk in the spring and summer of 1941, before Pearl Harbor, the U.S. was ratcheting up uh, the economic sanctions uh, on Japan, pushed by a Soviet agent. Uh, and all of this was a Soviet plan to stop the uh, Japanese from attacking the Soviet forces uh, in Siberia and Manchuria. The Soviet Union was just about to fight uh, the Nazis uh, when their invasion of Russia, Operation Barbarossa, uh, with the hope that instead Japan would go south towards Indonesia, towards the Dutch and British and American um, uh, colonies uh, in that part of the world, which were rich in oil and other materials like rubber, which was an important uh, uh, war material. So in fact, the, um, the, at this point, the U.S. Navy was beseeching Roosevelt, beseeching the administration, don't put pressure on the Japanese. We're in no position to fight a two-front war. We're expecting to be in war with Germany any minute. Don't fight a two-front war. We're not ready for it. And uh, Harry Dexter White and the agents of influence of the U.S. government were pushing just that kind of pressure on Japan. And ultimately, the Japanese military decided instead of going north into Siberia and Manchuria, they would go south. And thus, the war started with uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor. That is just one case of a Soviet agent influencing American foreign policy uh, to the benefit of Stalin and the Soviet Union. Wow. 
We can understand why this world holds such fascination for you and uh, why you have turned to it uh, as the heart of your really fascinating new novel, again called Gods of Deception, published by Greenleaf, the author David Adams Cleveland. David Adams Cleveland, it was a great pleasure to speak with you today uh, about this uh, intriguing, compelling novel, and we wish you uh, many more years of happy writing, and thank you again for being part of the morning show today. Greg, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.